following talk is from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk. Thanks for listening. We are continuing our series in Ephesians. Uh, Today we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2 in just a moment if you have your Bible with you. But just before that, if you have your Bible, flick over to Revelation uh, chapter 7. And uh, it turns out that apparently there's a number of kind of uh, stock phrases, if you like, that I often use, things that I often say, uh, so much so that last, uh, last week, a good friend of mine, she just, she'd happened to be shopping on the Saturday and she saw something in a market and thought, well, I'm just going to buy that for you because you literally say that all the time. Uh, and it said, it's just this little kind of poster thing. It says, smile, the best is yet to come. And I was like, I'm pretty sure I don't say that all the time. And a bunch of people around me went, yes, you do, as well as a whole load of other things. Well, I'm going to start today with a verse that I love to kind of talk about all the time because this is a a real big kind of for me personally on my heart in terms of this is where we're ultimately heading. Revelation chapter 7, uh, verses 9 to 10. After this I look, this is a vision of the new heavens and the new earth, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hand and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is a picture of what is to come. One day we will join the multitudes from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. This is the kind of, if you like, our final destination. As a church, we're on a journey. This is where we will ultimately head up. And what we're trying to do right now in this bit before we get there is try to work out how does this work here? How do we move ourselves on this journey going forward? And so we're in this series in Ephesians, and Ephesians is this picture of the church, what it is, what it ought to be, and what one day it will fully be. And what we're doing is we're using this series to kind of like drive, if you like, some key stakes into the ground of what we're really serious about as a church, what we're going to pursue, what we're passionate about, what we're going to give ourselves to, what we value. And if you stick around long enough in this church, then you're going to hear some of the same messages preached. Not like identical preaches, but identical topics because we're really serious about them. So you heard one last week, but we're going to have another one here today. And I want to, I think just feel today's one of those moments today, I want to hit the whole topic of diversity. You see, we want to build a church that reflects the future of the church in the present. Okay, we want to build a church of what we see in the future, and we want to build it right here in this place now. I don't care about pragmatism. I don't care about quick fixes to get more bums on seats. I don't care about political correctness. I really don't care about political correctness. I don't care about kind of being culturally acceptable and not trying to build something in such a way that says, look at me, look at us, look at New Community Church. I want to build a church that we see in the pages of Scripture want to build a church as faithfully as we can to what we are part of. And this here in Revelation 7 is a picture of where we're heading. God's eternal purpose is Jesus' multi-ethnic church. Let's just get that in your head for a moment. God's eternal purpose, I was talking about this a couple of weeks ago, is Jesus' multi-ethnic church. That moment where he unites everything under his kingly rule. And so where we find ourselves right now is we want to build a church that reflects the church we see in Scripture, a multi-ethnic, a multi-colored, a multi-everything, multi-diverse people. And we can look around the church, particularly if we brought our venues together and, and all the different meetings together, and we can say, hey, 
we're really pretty diverse. And in some ways, we are. There's a huge range of people here. We have very young babies and people at the other end. <laughs> and we have rich people and we have poor people. The, 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 the kind of range, if we stopped, I'm not going to do this, so don't worry. But if I ask you your salary, the range in this room alone would be huge. We have people who are educated and lots and lots, and lots of degrees. And we have people who didn't finish school. In many ways, we are already diverse. But I want to address an issue today of racial diversity. And I'll be straight up and honest with you, this is a minefield. In fact, it's like walking into a minefield wearing no body armor. You're going to step somewhere that you shouldn't, and it's going to blow up in your face. I'm going to get some things today. I'm going to say something that someone is going to get upset about. Someone's probably going to say, why did you say that? You shouldn't have used those words. That isn't helpful. This isn't good. We've got two options. Either go, well, let's just never just pretend it's not an issue and everything's nice and lovely or just step into the minefield and you know me and I know you love you guys I hope that you love me sufficiently that I can address this issue today I'm going to try and be as honest as I can be in this recognizing all the stuff that goes with it because you see the thing is as Christians we really haven't always done very well with this We haven't done very well in our practice, but frankly, we haven't done very well in our practice because our theology on it is often so very lightweight. And our attitude towards diversity and our theological approach towards diversity, to be honest, is often really rubbish. It starts in Genesis 1, like 27, when it says God made everyone in his own image, made man and woman in his own image, and it sort of ends in Galatians 3.28. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, we're one in Christ. Okay, in that case, God made everyone in his image, and everyone's now one in Christ. Problem solved. Let's just move on to something that's easier to talk about. And when we do that, we miss the, the richness and the depth and how much the Bible talks about this very issue. From God himself, the diversity we see in the Trinity through to his, his call to, to Abraham to say, I will make you a blessing to the nations of the world. And we think nations and we think countries. It's not. When the Bible talks about nations, it means people groups. We see it all the way through into the New Testament. Jesus in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission says, go and go. Don't just sit on your butt. Go and make disciples of what? All nations. All people groups teaching them everything, baptizing them. We see it all the way through in the picture we've just seen in, in Revelation 7. We have a gospel mandate, a gospel obligation, a, a gospel commission, if you like, to be as intentional as we can be, to do everything that we can do to reach all people from all nations. And God in his mercy and his wisdom and his graciousness towards us, kind of probably because he's got fed up of us waiting to go and do it, has said, well, I'll, I'll just bring the nations to you. I just land them all on your doorstep. That's a politically loaded statement to say right now. Here's the thing. I don't know where you, where you stay. I'm not telling you. You vote way however you want. But what I'm saying is this. We're about something bigger. We're about the gospel going to the nations of the world. We're about the name of Jesus being glorified amongst all peoples of the world. Because there is a day coming when we'll stand before the throne of God with people from every tribe and tongue. And that's what we want to see right here, right now. And we can't do this perfectly, but we can do the best we can. And when we get that the church is not a weekend destination, but the church is a blood-bought people of God, we begin to understand something of what we're doing in our journey. And Ephesians 2, where we're at today, uh, speaks right to the very heart of this. We spent the last few weeks looking into uh, chapter 1, and Paul ends chapter 1 
praying that his readers would see evidences of God's mighty hand at work in the world. And now we see in chapter 2 one of the main ways that we're sure that God's power is at work because people inside the church are living fully at peace with one another in a way that people outside of the church can't fully do. And we read in chapter 2, we have the first 10 verses, it's all about the individual. You were once dead in your sins and now not because of anything you've done or anything good in you or not because of you deserve it, not because you can earn it, but all as a work of his amazing grace, you are now found alive in Christ. You need to get that, you need to understand that because that's the foundation for what comes next. You didn't earn it, you can't deserve it, you don't deserve it, nothing you can do can ever bring his unmerited favor upon you, that's why it's unmerited, you were dead in your sin. But God, who is rich in mercy, made you alive. Whatever your background this morning, that was you. You were dead in your sin, but God in his mercy made you alive. Then we get to verse 11. He starts going corporate. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision by the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility." And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. I love how brutally honest and refreshingly real the Bible is. There's no pretense. It's not all like everything's wonderful. Everyone just kind of skips around holding hands and everything's nice and and lovely and everyone loves one another. You're all different people, but you all get on real well. No, no, no. There's absolute bluntness and brutal reality here. Paul says the Jews and the Gentiles exist in a state of hostility. A state of hostility. They really don't like each other. There's this dividing wall, this dividing wall of hostility between them. In the older translations of the Bible, it says there's an enmity. That hostility, it just simply means hate. That's pretty strong. They exist with this hate towards one another. There's an issue not only between man and God, but between fellow man. And when there are people from different races, from different nation groups, from different tribes, from different people groups... There's an issue. There always has been. And it's an issue of hostility. And some of us, particularly if you're like me, and you're a white British person, you might kind of sit here and and think, well, race, it isn't really an issue at all. I thought we'd kind of moved on from that. Sure, it was an issue in the past, I get that. But there's laws now and stuff, and no one really... That's, that's done, right? I mean, we, we can look around and we can see that increasingly there are a number of people who are not white British and so we are, we're a diverse church. But I, I just want to say this up front straight away. This is an issue that is way more than just having different colored faces in the room. We're about more than box ticking. We're actually way more about way more than just diversity. We're about doing what this passage talks about, which is pursuing gospel reconciliation. 
You know, the new heavens and the new earth will be populated not just by different types of people, but different types of people who are reconciled back to one another, who are now one in Christ. And that's what we're pursuing here. And if I'm being brutally honest, and I am, far too much of our church, across all its venues and meetings, far too much of it is, is white, and it's white middle class. And if you're in that category of white middle class, you might feel quite comfortable about that. You might not even acknowledge it. You probably don't, probably don't notice it. You probably think, well, what's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what we're about. We're not about one homogenous group. We want to reflect the full diversity of who God is and the people he has made. And we've made significant progress as a church, but we, um, my heart's desire, we, what we want to see, what we need to see, if we become truly the multi-ethnic church that I believe God has called us to, is we need to move on. And this really hit me about a year or so ago when I was talking to a black lady and just after one of our prayer meetings, she'd just come first time. She'd not been around for very long, come to the prayer meeting and she was blown away. She was just chatting to me. She was enthusiastic. She was saying, this is so wonderful. This is so exciting. I'm really loving it. I'm, I'm loving the, what you're trying to do here. I'm loving the vision. I'm loving the heart. I loved worship. I didn't think I'd enjoy a prayer meeting, but I really did. It was wonderful. I, I'm even enjoying, I'm surprised. She said, I'm surprising myself and I'm even enjoying worship. And I looked at her as if like, what are you talking? of course, we were great at worship. And she said, um, to be honest, I'm surprised myself that I've enjoyed it so much. I said, why is that? She said, because I've never been to a white church before. I was like, sorry, what? My immediate reaction was a defensive one. I wanted to turn around and point every white, non-white person out in the room and go, we're not a white church, look, look. But I didn't because she was right. That's a sobering thing to say she was right. Now, by God's grace, we're increasingly moving away from that. But I think I just, I've always said to you, and I always will, I want to be brutally honest about it, even when it's uncomfortable, it's uncomfortable for me to stand and admit that and say that because that's not what I want. And I don't believe it's what God's desire for us is either. And if you're white here today, especially if you're white British, you probably think, what? And if you're not white here today, you know what I'm talking about, I think. And here's the thing. Paul gets right to the heart of this issue here. You see, what Paul does is he, he uses Jews and Gentiles as a case study. A specific example of a universal truth. When there are people from different backgrounds, there are walls of hostility. There are barriers that divide us. And, and talking about race, we need to acknowledge that this is a, a sensitive and complex issue. I've not had this much attention in a room for a long time. <laughs> and as much as we'd like it to be, it's not a straightforward issue. It's a topic that's wrapped up in all sorts of issues to do with history and politics and emotional legacies. It's deeply personal for many people. And we really make a mistake if we think that issues to do with race are a thing of the past and we're now on a level playing field. Because we're, to be honest, we're not. My story, some of you heard me say this before, I was about four or five years old, 1988 European football championships in West Germany and the Netherlands had just beaten Soviet Union 2-0 in the final and, and uh, Marco van Basten scored the goal that was like the best goal that's ever been scored in European championships and Ruud Hollett scored the other goal. Ruud Hollett was my hero. I mean, the guy was amazing football. But really, to be totally honest with you, I just wanted to look like him. I just wanted his hair. He had like cool dreadlocks and that's just what I wanted and this mustache. And I remember saying to my mum that uh, next time I went to the hairdressers, I wanted Ruud's hair and Ruud's mustache. 
And my mum, I mean, you think I'm blunt, right? My mum is a very blunt woman. She took, she took the opportunity, I'm like four or five, to explain puberty to me. And uh, also... <laughs> And also to explain that I probably wouldn't be able to ever have hair like Rude Hollett because I wasn't black. Now, I didn't, I didn't think much about that at all until I went to school and had that, you know, that classic scenario where the teacher says, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I just, because this is what I wanted to do, I said, I want to be black. Because I want hair like Rude Hollett. And I'll never forget what the teacher said. She said to me, no, you don't. You don't want to be black. And I remember being confused about this as a four or five-year-old. I said, well, why not? And she said, because black people experience this thing, that, this word I'd never heard used before, racism. And I was, what you want? And I suddenly, in that moment as a little kid, became aware of the differences. I suddenly, for the first time ever, thought, wow, there are kids here who look different from me. I'd never noticed before. Issues of racism and race were a sensitive topic in the 1980s, and it's not gone away. It's still a sensitive topic today. And as you can see, I, I didn't grow up to be black. I don't have hair like Rude Hullet. Tried it once, it didn't work. I am well aware of my whiteness as I talk about this situation. And if you think this is not a sensitive topic, think about this. You probably wouldn't want anybody to think of you as being ageist. You're ageist. You probably wouldn't want that. You probably wouldn't want anybody to think of you being sexist. You definitely wouldn't want anybody to accuse you of being racist. You're racist. Any hint of that and you react, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. It's a sensitive topic. But if we want to be the church that we dream of, we need to tackle these issues honestly and talk about them. And the honest fact about this is this is difficult. Things have changed since the 80s. I'm pretty sure no school teacher would tell a kid these days, you don't want to be black. And in the UK, quite rightly, it's completely unacceptable to be racist. Let's just be really clear. Racism in any form, in any way, shape or form, is a sin, full stop. But if we're really honest, if we scratch the surface, these tensions are still there. They're just in way more subtle terms. So, for example, while people might live in the same communities, might work together, might send their children to the same school together, might go to church together, people rarely socialize across communities. The reality is that most people choose to spend time with people like themselves. And although, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying everybody, although some people have deep and meaningful friendships across the racial divide, as it were, the fact is most of us don't. We can be friendly and polite, but when it comes to developing deep friendships, we tend to retreat back into our comfort zones and stick with those who are familiar to ourselves. And this happens in society all the time, but... Sadly, it, just, it still happens in the church as well. If I was to ask you to list the five people that you spend most time with outside of your immediate family, not everyone, but most of us, they would be pretty much exactly the same race, color, creed, whatever as, as ourselves. If I stretched it to 10, probably still be the same. I think we need to be honest about that. See, we might not like this word hostility. We might just bite against it and go, no, not, no, I'm not like that. I don't hate anybody. But we can't deny what the Bible is saying here. The Bible, basically, Paul is teaching us here that there is something in the human heart that takes all these good gifts that God gives us, your ethnicity, your cultural background. they like good gifts, if you like, from God. And we take them and we elevate them in such a way that they become, have absolute value. And then what we do is we, we look at everyone else who doesn't have those things and isn't like that. And what it does is it causes us to look down on them. 
It causes us to go, well, at least we're not like them. And these good things that God has given us cause us become the basis for hostility. And that's true of individuals, but it's also true of races and cultures and, and people groups. You see, the way we get an identity, the way we define ourselves, the way we get our sense of self-worth is by taking what's good about us, what's distinct about us, and, and sort of lifting it up and then taking a look at everyone else and, and kind of like, without even meaning to do it, we end up judging people, especially those who are not like we are and don't act in the same way as we do. And we say, oh, well, we're not like them. We're like this. They're like that. And you see that throughout the pages of the Bible. We get our identity by looking down and excluding others. And the perfect place we see it is like in, uh, in Luke 18 where the Pharisee is praying. Literally, the first words out of his mouth in verse 11 is, Oh Lord, I thank you that I'm not like these other people. We're exactly the same today. And we can so easily fall into the trap of thinking we're better than other people. And none of us would ever say this with our mouths. None of us are ever going to say that. We know, we've, we know we don't say that. We know that that's not what you should do. But there's a difference in what you say with your mouth and what you kind of believe in your heart and what you think in your head. And there's a much bigger difference about how we then live it out with our lives as well. So just as an example for you, think about how different cultures view things. All right? I'm not going to label the cultures. You can work this out for yourself. You can think, oh, yeah, that sounds a bit like them. Point done. All right, so some cultures, they're time-orientated. All right, you get to a meeting on time because it starts at this time and everything is on this time. So I'm going, I'm going to, I've got to be at this party or I've got to be at this thing and, and someone catches me, I'm sorry, I've got to be here. I'm going. Some cultures are time-orientated. Some cultures are event or people-orientated. Of course I'll chat to you for an hour because it doesn't really matter what time I get there because you're more important right now than this. Happens all the time. And what we do is we end up making judgments in our hearts and our heads. These guys are always late. Or these guys are so uptight. These guys, like seriously, they need to get over themselves. Who on their deathbed is ever going to think, well, at least I arrived everywhere on time. Different cultures have different kind of things, and that's how it works. There's kind of like hostility and barriers between us. And think about the challenges that brings to church life for a moment. All right, so we have like a meeting where they're gathering the team together, and one culture's like, you need to be there. If you're not there, you can't participate. Well, I'm kind of there, and you know what I'm doing, and I'm doing all this kind of stuff. Yeah, practice or whatever, and some people are there, and some people are not. That's an issue. Think about the implications for pastoral ministry. There are certain cultures that kind of like, here's the boundaries. And you're allowed to call me between those times and no other time. And if you call me in the night, I'm never talking to you again. Versus other culture, you can ring me whenever you want. I'm here for you. It doesn't really matter. Whenever you need me, I'm there. I'll drop everything. I'll be around for you. Now, I'm not saying one's right and one's wrong. I'm saying there are multiple cultures within our church. And it's not just like there are two. There are multiple. You're conditioned by your background, by your culture, your upbringing, your time, all the rest of it. It's who we are. These challenges for us. Praise God, there's a solution as well. Verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
See, before Jesus, all right, let's get this. Before Jesus, there were, the earth had two groups of humanity. There was the Jews and there was everyone else. They called the Gentiles. Just two groups, that's it, Jews and Gentiles. And after Jesus' resurrection, a third ethnicity was supernaturally born, the multicolored, multi-ethnic church, the people of God. Our sin has separated us from God, but also from one another. And the cross now, Jesus' death and resurrection, provides a way for the re- reconciliation between man and God, but also between fellow man. The cross now removes the barriers. Jesus didn't break down the walls of hostility so that we could say hi to one another on a Sunday morning and continue to live our lives with our barriers up the rest of the week. He broke the wall down and he brought people together and made us family, fellow citizens, members of his household. You see, that's what the gospel does. It doesn't just save us. Get this. The gospel doesn't just save us, it also transforms us. It reconciles those who are once enemies. It makes us one in Christ because it gives us a new identity. See, our secular Western culture quite rightly believes that racism is a terrible thing. And the Bible agrees from beginning to end. But the question is, how do you remove it? See, our secular world says what we're going to do is we're going to shout at everyone very loudly who even hints at being racist. We're going to tell them off. We're going to scold them. We're going to mock them and scorn them. And at the same time, we're going to educate people so eventually everybody gets that this thing is wrong. And here's the thing. It hasn't worked. All it's done is it's taught us not to say the things in our heart out loud. All it's done is taught us to where it's acceptable, never, except with some other people just exactly like you, as long as you promise to nod and a wink and you never say it with anybody else hasn't worked. Why has it not worked? Because at the end of the day, the problem is not what comes out of our mouths or it's in our head. The problem is in our hearts. The problem is an issue of identity. You see, the gospel goes after the heart and it gives you a completely new identity, which means when you become a Christian, you're not just a little different. It's not now that you just have some extra spiritual strength in some way. In fact, when you become a Christian, the very thing that you think of yourself, the very way in which you have an identity, it has been completely restructured. And so the gospel transforms us in two ways. Firstly, the gospel destroys all the comparison tools that we use in order to think we're better than someone else. And secondly, the gospel is it reshuffles the layers in your identity deck. So look at verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. The Gentiles, they're the ones who are far away from God. And the Jews, they were the ones who are near to God. And verse 17 says both of them needed to hear the gospel of peace. Both of them needed to be reconciled to God. Both of them were estranged from God and needed to be saved. It doesn't matter whether you think you've done everything right or it doesn't matter whether you know you've done everything wrong. You need the gospel and that's a level playing field right there. I can't look down on anyone else because I am no better or no worse than anyone else. We are all equal before God. All of us stand equally as sinners in need of forgiveness. And all of us stand equally as recipients of grace when we put our trust in Jesus. And because of that, when I put my trust in Jesus, the second I become a Christian, 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. 
And so the second you become a Christian, you become a new creation. And that means our primary identity is not in the color of my skin or my abilities or my possessions or my material things or anything of my background. My primary identity is now in Christ. And so I'm not a white Christian. I'm a Christian who happens to be white. If you're black, you're not a black Christian. You're a Christian who happens to be black. Our primary identity is in Christ. And that's what unites us. I am a completely new creation. We're now brothers and sisters in Christ. And we don't lose our cultural heritage. We don't lose our ethnicity. It's not like it's no longer important in any way, but it's now, it's not our primary identity. So I'm a white guy. I don't need to apologize for that. I don't need to feel guilty for it. I don't need to be proud about it. I don't need to boast in it. I don't need to somehow think it makes me something that I'm not because God chose me and made me who I am. My identity is now found in him. Whoever you are, whatever your background is, if you're in Christ, you've got nothing to boast about other than in him. You've got nothing to feel proud or superior or smug or inferior about because you're now found in him. I was in Kenya last week. I'll be honest with you. I have never felt more uncomfortable, more out of place, more aware of my whiteness, more aware of my westernness, more aware of my comparative richness than I did walking through the slums of Nairobi. And yet the moment I walked through the doors of the shack of the family that I was visiting, I've never felt more normal, more home, more loved, more accepted, more at one with them. Why? Because they, like me, have been made alive in Christ. Once we were both alienated from God, but now because of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, supernaturally this third ethnicity has been formed of which we're part of. And so now I have more in common, this struck me so deeply, I I have more in common with the single mum who was raped as a kid, who's lived lives in a slum in, Niger- in, um, in Nairobi, uh, who has no education, no material possessions to speak of, I have more in common with her than I do with my next door neighbor where I live right now. Wow. I felt more at home sitting there talking to them than I did sitting in my next door neighbor's front room. Why? Because she and I are both part of the blood-bought people of God. We're literal brother and sister in Christ. And if you're a Christian here today, so are you. So are we. And of course, we're not all the same. We're not trying to create a monoculture here where we diminish our differences. God's not colorblind. All right? He created our differences. He celebrates our differences. He created us in, in such a way. I mean, he's God, right? If he wanted just a single monoculture, that's exactly what he would have made. But he didn't. He made you as you are and he placed you where you are and he placed me next to you and the person next to you next to you because this is what he celebrates and so should we. And this brings challenges of course because we all have different styles and preferences and tastes. We all like things in a certain way. We prefer church to be done like this. We prefer the music to be like that. But here's the thing. If we are one in Christ... If we're united, if we're brothers and sisters, if we love one another, if we prefer one another, we now lay down our own desires and our own preferences for the sake of the whole. And I just want to honor so many of you who have done that. And if you're white British, that's not you. And here's the thing. I know I've got to take a lead on this. I've got to do something about this. I don't want to just hot air and whatever. need your help. Because the majority white culture thing, we've probably got to shift a whole lot more. 
Because anybody who's not of that majority white British culture has already shifted significantly. Hey, it's time for us to move. So what do we do next? I'm going to end real quick. I'd love to stay here and talk more. I'd love to, I've got to go out with them and tell them the same stuff in a minute. But listen, there's three things. I just feel prayer is such a key thing for this. You pray together, you pray with people, you stand on the same level. Prayer is a key. Get here on Wednesday. Let's pray together. Let's be a people who, who seek God together who understand what the gospel has done for us. Let's be a people who... Second thing is, I hate all this alliteration stuff. I'm really sorry. I didn't do it on purpose. Pray, pursue, and persevere. Let's be a people who pursue this, like intentionally pursue this. We've got to get intentional about this. We've got to get in community with people who are different from us. I have grown the most in the gospel, not when I've hung out with 30-something white guys, although I love doing that, but when I've hung out with people who are different from me because they knock the edges off me, they shape me. I, I know there will be things that I've said today where somebody will come and lovingly correct me and shape me in it. And that's where we grow the most, in community with people who are different from one another. And for some of us, that means we're going to have to increase our ethnic IQ, if you like. Not just say hi to people on a Sunday and then leg it out the door as quickly as we can but actually get to know people, walk in each other's shoes, share each other's stories, hear each other's successes and failures, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, get to really love one another. You don't do that at distance. I mean, I love the back of your heads, but that's not how we build relationship just by seeing on a Sunday. It goes way beyond. I think we're going to need to persevere. It's a hard journey, man. Like, just juggling the whole thing the whole time, it's not as easy as going, well, let's have more diverse worship. And then we'll be fine. Everyone will be happy. That's not the way it works. But we do need some people to step up to the plate. We need to see diversity at every level. I refuse to believe that the only musicians we've got are generally white British folk. It's a joy in my heart when people start songs from where they are. And you're like, is this... Like a song, like their own personal one, are they singing some? Oh no, it's a hymn from the 1970s, that's fine. I don't mind that. We want to build this thing. There's going to be some bumps in the road. There's going to be some moments where you get it wrong. I've probably done a few of them today. But we're one in Christ, so we love one another, we forgive one another, and we build one another up and we move forward. Some of you are way further down the track than this than me. Need your help. Some of you, you know there's a call of God on your life into leadership, and what generally types to happen is, is in a kind of British Western kind of culture, leaders kind of proudly announce themselves as leaders and go, I'm a leader, I'm here, use me. And in other cultures, which to be honest is far better, don't. You sit there in your seats. Some of you, you're properly leaders. Just waiting to be asked. I'm asking you now. I'm sorry I don't know you in that same way. I need to. Forgive me. It's time to step up and move forward. We've got to hold on to this. I'm going to preach into this as often as I can. I want to be serious about it. Thanks for listening to this talk from New Community. For more information about New Community, check out newcommunitychurch.org.uk.